So around the time of the Buddha, there was a belief that um, if you saw this vision in the sky of a revolving wheel coming towards you, and you were a leader, it meant that you could become the universal wheel-turning monarch, and that you could peacefully conquer the entire universe, and that seven magical treasures would appear. One of them was this revolving wheel, and there was um, an elephant and a horse that were magical and could fly you wherever you wanted to go, and a jewel, magical jewel, that would illuminate all directions, everything you wanted to see. And you would have a beautiful partner who was kind and unsurpassed in beauty and other talents. (laughs) Of whatever sex you happen to prefer. (laughs) And uh, you had a steward who could produce wealth at will, and a general who could accomplish all your orders peacefully. And so when the Buddha um, began to teach, the Tathagata, as he was called, it was said that when the Tathagata appeared, the seven treasures of the Tathagata appeared, and that the wheel of mindfulness would one of the treasures would help you be able to peacefully conquer the entire inner universe of your being, of your mind. And you would become the spiritual emperor of your own universe with the crown jewel of mindfulness. And so that's my hope for you this evening, that that you will be (laughs) possessed with these seven wonderful treasures factors of awakening. And the Buddha said, I do not see even one other thing that when cultivated and developed leads to the abandoning of all these things that fetter so effective as this, the seven factors of awakening. They lead anyone who acts upon them to the complete destruction of suffering and to the attainment of liberation knowledge, awakening, nirvana. And so they're a very special and precious teaching, and they come in many parts of the path. And they're innate qualities, each of which has the capacity, as they move together, to guide us to awakening, to contribute. And mindfulness, of course, is the crown jewel. And then there are three arousing factors, There's investigation, energy or persistence, and joy. So that those are the causes. And they provide this sustained, joyful interest. And then there are the three stabilizing ones, or balancing ones, of tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. And they provide the calm, collected balance. And so in a way, the first three are like the insight practices and the second three like the tranquility practices, the calming practices. And together they provide the whole path. And we can develop them in several ways. 
One of them, as we've been doing here actually, is through a linear progression or sequence, beginning with mindfulness and gradually going from one to the next to the next until we come to equanimity. In a way, it parallels the progression of the jhana factors and the four jhanas. And you can see how that that would happen. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. And also, cultivating any one of them will strengthen and balance the others. They all contribute to each other. And as we deepen our samadhi, it sets them in motion. So you've already been practicing with them here, and they've already been strengthening and developing. And as I talk about each one, just invite you to see how each one is for you. We each have our strengths and weaknesses. And so you can incline to each one as I mention it. Notice if it's present or absent for you. And notice how just inclining the mind is a way already of strengthening it, of bringing it into being. Because they're beneficial things that grow with our appreciation. The more we shine the light on them, the more they become brighter into our awareness. And there are two things that most lead to their development and cultivation. And they are what we've already been doing careful attention and diligence, clearly knowing, mindful. Those are the two things that will most set them in motion. So we want a wise attention. It's what we pay attention to and how we pay attention. Listening with our whole attention in a relaxed, easy way and inclining our mind to the... To the um, skillful ways of connecting. So be prepared. The factors of awakening may awaken you just listening to them. And it's said that both Sariputra and Moggallana um, experienced awakening just through listening to the Buddha teach about the factors of awakening. I think evidently Sariputra was standing to one side as he was teaching the factors of awakening. And another occasion, the same with Moggallana. And just hearing that, just hearing and inclining the mind brought forth their full perfection. So when we put our mind towards them, it's like it draws us into their stream. We just get carried along with them. The Buddha said, just as a river flows towards the ocean. The factors of awakening flow towards Nibbāna. They carry us along. And they have both physical benefits as well as mental benefits. They're very healing and balancing of our body, mind, and heart. And they, just like our concentration practice and the practices we've been doing, have a foundation in sīla, As we practice, we've been secluding ourselves from unskillful thoughts. We've been practicing the three wise vitakas, renunciation, kindness, compassion, inclining our minds in that way, building the capacity to be able to put down the distractions 
the unskillful mind habits and so forth. We've been training our mind, and this supports the factors of awakening so that we can bring our attention and direct it to where we want. So mindfulness is the first, and this is the one that sets it all in motion because it brings in that um, powerful, careful attention, being with things as they are. And it's beneficial in any situation. It's the factor that you can never have too much of. It's the balancing one. And in our samadhi practice, the practice we've been doing, we're using mindfulness of the breath, the first foundation of mindfulness, as a way of generating the other factors of awakening. As we move into insight practice, it's more mindfulness of all the foundations, paying attention to of feeling tone and mind states and um, the hindrances and so forth, and the body, everything, and being aware of the changing nature of all the other foundations. That's what sets the factors of awakening in motion and can progress all the other factors. So mindfulness then is the foundation and it's also the pivot point that balances all the others. It's like a fulcrum and it helps us connect rather than disconnect. And the training is to establish mindfulness moment to moment. Having one moment of mindfulness is great. We can celebrate that. But it needs to be, but it disappears as soon as it arises, as you'll have noticed. So we need to make it continuous, one moment after another. We need to remember to be mindful. We call the intention to be present. We're not trying to change anything, just staying engaged and present over and over. So notice right now, is there the factor of mindfulness present or not? Again, not to judge, but just to know. And of course, mindfulness alone doesn't need to lead to awakening. It's the cascade of the other factors that does that. But the more continuous the mindfulness is, the more interested we get, the more curious, and we start paying closer and closer attention. So it's as though we have the Galileo telescope and we're starting to see more and more details about the planets. We're looking closer at what we're seeing. We're getting fascinated to see how it all works. And that brings forth Dhamma Vichaya, which is the first of the arousing factors. And this is um, sometimes called discrimination of dhammas, um, discerning wisdom, investigation of states, these other translations. But it's the interest that allows us to stay present and curious and to become intimate with our experience. We've been using it all along as we got more and more curious about the breath. And as we begin to move into insight practice, then investigation of dharmas becomes a little more reflecting, a little more questioning, a little more, um, how is this working? How is this happening? rather than just a simple um, shining the light to pay attention. Often it's called the sword of wisdom, the uh, truth discerning wisdom. 
And in one story and teaching, it was said to be the most important factor of awakening because it cuts through. But you need all the other factors to actually wield the sword. So they're all important. But this one is what cuts through ignorance and delusion. Because it's when it's developed, ignorance is abandoned. So of course that makes it a wonderful antidote for doubt. So it's like a flashlight that's lighting up the field of awareness. It's showing things more clearly. And it's revealing, dispelling confusion and revealing what's here. So it may be that you look in your beautiful, huge aquarium and the water's all cloudy. And you need a little discerning wisdom to explore what is this? What's the cloudiness? But not only are you exploring the cloudiness, but you want to see and the nature of that, but what's revealed behind the cloudiness? What's the nature of the fish? So it's going through deeper and deeper layers. So maybe it's shining into a dark closet that's full of cobwebs. So we don't want to just know the nature of the cobwebs, but what the cobwebs are hiding deeper layers. So we're looking at the objects and also the field in which the objects are arising. And we're seeing more and more. So there are two functions to discriminating to this um, Dhamma Vichaya. One is more a discriminating function, knowing what's skillful and not skillful. And in our samadhi practice, mindfulness and dhamma-vichaya provide this kind of fine-tuning that differentiates between things and helps fine-tune our practice. So mindfulness might show there's a lot of tension and tightness there. Dhamma-vichaya begins to reveal what that's composed of and untangles it a little. Oh, there's wanting here. There's really wanting but there's also not liking the state we're in. So it clarifies what hindrance is there. Not out of trying to figure it out, but just an intuitive knowing. And it can differentiate between judging and no judging. Oh, when there's judging, I can't connect with the breath because it repels it. Ah, so it just shows us more clearly and makes it easier to connect. So the value is that it helps us, it helps us um, see more clearly how to adjust our practice, know when adjustments are made and how to make them. It's like, is this working? We can monitor our practice and learn for ourselves what's right for each of us. So we're not kind of blindly practicing the same way and kind of stuck. But Dhammavichaya is showing us how we can adjust. So the sati, mindfulness plus Dhammavichaya, make us aware of what works and what doesn't. And then trust builds. And it's, as I said, it's not an intellectual figuring out. It's very attuned and intuitive, alert, full presence. It reveals it's like it's the more we have this tool, the more it does it itself. And some of you have noticed that. You've naturally known how to shift a little this way or a little that way. 
As we open to our Vipassana in insight practice, we start to give attention to different mind states. We start to be aware of those more. And we can see which ones are beneficial and which are not. We can st- the Buddha talked about the correct application of attention, keeping the most skillful things in mind. So we notice, what am I choosing to look at? What am I choosing to connect and sustain on? This story of, oh, woe is me, or whatever it is, do I really want to be putting my attention here? So it reveals that. What meaning am I giving things? Am I proliferating, exaggerating? Is this really true? So it just shows us what's happening. And this noticing what's present and what's absent is a simple function of discernment. And it's bringing both our shamatha practice and our insight practice together in a beautiful way. And this is a beautiful time of the retreat to start allowing this to happen. Because there's some stability, you're more able to use the discernment skillfully without getting tangled. Because there's a basis of stability and clear seeing that um, enables it to untangle and enables the mindfulness and investig- enables the two to do this beautiful fine-tuning job. So it's, it's helping lifting the layers of concepts so we can see more clearly. And the second function of Dhammavichaya is really um, a lot of what Temple was ex- talking about last night, this more active inquiry into the nature of reality, into how things are actually unfolding, into the law of the Dhamma. We're looking more closely, and those are the words last night, yata, buddha, nana, adasana. Something like that. <laughs> And um, it's really this knowledge and vision of things as they actually are. And we begin to see that more clearly. Things unmediated by all the concepts that we layer on top of them. And the veils start to fall away. And we start to see really clearly the changing nature of things. Things are not as solid and we see how much of our experience is in constant motion. All the intense sensations are arising and passing. The aversion to those sensations is arising and passing. Becoming the one who had those sensations is arising and passing. And then there's a relief as that begins to ease. We really see that the hindrances are inherently empty. They're just arising and passing. And so we're less bothered, less caught in their drama. They're arising due to causes and conditions. And we don't take them so personally. And then we look into the impermanent nature of self. And we see that arising and passing. We see the identities that we have arising and passing. I'm great arising. I'm useless arising and passing. Over and over. I had one retreat where I felt like it, I don't know whether um, North Americans did this, but in Britain we would have a daisy or a dandelion and we'd pull off the petals. He loves me, he loves me not, and so forth. 
Well, I'm useless, I'm great. I'm useless, I'm great. And you see which petal you end up with. <laughs> Practice can feel like that. But it, it's just this seeing how, um, how futile it is to attach to it and having compassion for that. So we're looking into the process of perceiving. We're seeing the process of perception rather than the um, perceptions themselves, rather than the content of it. The process of perceiving rather than the contents of perception. Um, and it gives us more perspective. We, it's like we have this step back and we can see clearly the identities coming and going. And so we, and that loosens them a little bit and we don't take them so seriously. We're less pulled around by the thoughts and feelings or the beliefs that we have about ourselves. And that gives us more choice in how we act and how we respond. So that's the value of Dharma Vichaya. And of course, it can be out of balance. And that's where the mindfulness comes in. If we bring in too much Dharma Vichaya, then it brings in agitation. If you're in a place of restlessness or maybe excitement, um, worry, anxiety, not so useful a time to bring in Dharma Vichaya. We need more calming energy because just thoughts will proliferate and it will we'll get lost in thought. So skillful means to see when it's useful to incline the mind towards this quality. But it's a self-correcting system. If we bring it in when we're agitated, mindfulness will reveal, ah, increasing agitation, even more worried, even more thoughts. And then we, we can ease off and bring in calm. Or if the mind, um, if there's too little, then the mind is dull and sleepy and confused and we need to bring it in. And concentration provides the stability so that we can bring it in without it going to extremes because there's more stability there. And it also is a positive feedback loop. The more interested we are in something, the more the interest grows and the more we begin to see. The more we see, the more curious we are. And it's like the shining light of this quality always reveals that there's more to understand. There's another door to open. There's another possibility. And so it's just this endless possibility that this quality brings. The fields of whatever we know keep expanding. And so it helps us let go of fixed beliefs because we can open to more possibility. And that leads to increased energy and delight. And so as as I was speaking, I was noticing this increased energy and delight and this feeling that, ah, maybe a little calm is needed. Take a breath. So energy, I didn't take a long enough breath. (laughs) That's the value of mindfulness. (laughs) Why you can never not have enough mindfulness. So energy is this beautiful quality of wholehearted um, 
attention to our practice, wholehearted engagement in our practice that brings it alive. The persistence, the um, enthusiasm for our practice that keeps us engaged no matter what. When it's a factor of awakening, it's stable and balanced and aware. It's, and it's fueled by wise view and wise intention rather than the hindrances. So in order for energy to be a factor of awakening, there's that balance that it has. And so our motivation and energy are key. Motivation and intention are key. Again, mindfulness, very important. (laughs) Because whatever we give our attention to, whatever receives our energy, that enters the heart and in turn stimulates the action and reaction. And so motivation and intention are really important things in how we align our energy. If we get caught in indecision and doubt, that really um, takes energy up. Faith feeds the energy. Judging, comparing, and fixing deplete energy. Um, And any inner battle is tiring and draws in and takes up energy. So it's this gentle, relaxed attention that we've been cultivating here that feeds the energy. And what many of you have seen is that then it gradually starts to flow on its own and it's effortless. It doesn't take so much effort to remain with the breath because the energy begins to do it all by itself. It's like we become this channel for the energy to flow. And there's this balance between being and doing. And it's not to um, hold the view that non-effort is superior. Because we want this balance. We want both a steadfast resolve and a gentle, um, soft, persistent So the gentlest touch and the firm resolve, both in balance. Just enough the right amount of energy to be present and awake. And that will change moment by moment. And that changes, as you know, some sits you need a little, some moments you need a little stronger connection. Others you need to release and back off. So there's no single correct setting. It's always this gentle adjustment of energy. And the more we can do it in our practice, the more we begin to be able to do it in our lives and to be able to um, adjust, to stop the energy flowing into addictive patterns, to be able to unplug from distractions and from busyness and from having to do. The more we can align ourselves with how the energy feels balanced here, the more we'll be able to tune into what it would be like when we're at home. So just have a sense right now of this factor of virya, of the energy factor of awakening. How is it manifesting for you? Just to have a sense of that. So that now we're inclining our mind with mindfulness, with interest, and with this balanced energy. 
And as we do that, these energy factors, these energizing factors align to, into this um, sustained joyful interest. And so this is what leads into the next factor, the factor of joy. And as a, as a jhana factor, this is piti. And so you can see how this progression follows the same progression as the jhana factors, as the jhanas. This is a wholehearted enjoyment, full presence, that doesn't require external stimuli. And the hindrances are decreasing, and we feel this just this sense of delight. And as an awakening factor, when joy is functioning as an awakening factor, it's a smooth, delighted joy. It's not sort of rough and bouncy, but just this smooth feeling of delight in the lessening of the hindrances. Or it might be the delight in just having a few moments of mindfulness. It can really have this whole range. So we're learning to practice being at ease, giving full presence. And it's not confined to our meditation practice. Sally was talking beautifully the other night about the ways when we're in nature we can open to this sense of joy and delight just by being fully present. And there's many ways we can bring full presence to our lives. And we can't force it, but we can incline. And it's a really important balancing quality that we really need in our lives and our culture because there's so much suffering in the world. We need this balance of joy. One of our colleagues, Christina Feldman, would talk, I was teaching with her this same retreat, and she said, um, this is not a miserable path to the deepest misery. (laughs) And encouraging this could be a joyful path, a happy path to happiness. And some of you have noticed when you've been through your periods of purification, of difficulty, of allowing some of the most difficult things to pass through, often on the other side, there's a sense of ease and of relief. And this sense of the possibility of joy when, we've, when some of the pain and the difficulty has emptied out, there's room for joy. As it says in the Dire Straits song, There's always sunshine after rain. Why worry now? So one of the ways, of course, that we bring, we can incline to joy is recollecting goodness, the gladdening of the mind that Philip was exploring the other morning, connecting with generosity, the love, compassion, gratitude and appreciation we feel for people and things in our lives. And there are so many beautiful examples of that. Just a few months ago, I was traveling by bus in the city where I live, in in Vancouver, and um, this was a bus that was an express bus and didn't normally stop at different places and an elderly woman got on who didn't realize that, and of course she wanted to stop somewhere it didn't. 
and the driver went out of his way to stop for her, which they normally never break regulations, so this was a big deal. He stopped for her, and she got off and was appreciative. And then a little bit further down, he stopped for someone who was um, disabled and needed help getting on with a walker. And so a couple of things that happened, and so when it was my turn to get off, I was just moved by this. So I, I thanked him. I really appreciated it. I said, you know, you made my day. I really appreciate it. And he turned to me and he said, thank you for noticing. You made my day too. And it was just both of us, I, I, I imagine he did too, went away with this feeling of joy, of sharing, of appreciation. And so those moments in life where we can connect with each other and sense that interconnection that we share and really allow that capacity for joy and kindness that we all have. And just as with the um, factors of energy, um, judging, comparing and fixing also block joy. When we're giving ourselves a hard time, or when we're judging other people, it's hard to allow the capacity for joy to come in and, and awaken us. When we have certain views of ourself, any form of selfing can really block joy. Ajahn Sumedho says, when the heart is free of illusions of self, there arises a loving quality in the pure joy of being without expectation of being anything or being anybody, nor the expectation of anything lasting or being permanent. Joy in just being in this moment. So it's that letting go of needing to be anyone. And of course there's having humor when we get caught. Lily Tomlin says, I always wanted to be somebody, but it was so exhausting. I guess I should have been more specific. (laughs) (laughs) And so that having humor about it brings joy, not taking ourselves so seriously. So it's that taking ourselves lightly factor of awakening and being good to each other. So as a factor of awakening, it's a soothing joy, and it also leads into calm. The body and mind become calm and tranquil and settled. And the transition from joy to tranquility is like balancing this shift from what energizes to what calms. And it happens naturally in our practice, but sometimes we just have that sense of inclining and the calm will come. And the more we've been building the capacity of samadhi, of concentration, the more naturally that inclining will take us there. And we become more calm just by inclining from the energizing to the tranquilizing. And this tranquility factor of awakening is resting in the knowing. It's that resting in knowing. And there's this calmness, relaxed, ease. And it's like a cooling of all the difficult states. So sense that right now. Is the factor of awakening of tranquility present or not? How is it? 
just incline the mind towards that possibility. Stillness, calm, soothing, healing. So it's free from restlessness, free from inner struggle. This thinking is decreased and there's a sense of stillness and ease. And there's a relief at letting go of trying to control everything. We're just letting, beginning to let things be as they are. And this peace comes from simplifying. These streams of all the difficulties are starting to, everything's starting to release and we're beginning to just let go a little more. And the body is soothed. And the nervous system is soothed and eased. And you can sense that in your body. Just sense that right now. The body becoming more still, calm, eased. And the mind is composed and unruffled. Like the waters of a very still pond or lake are unruffled. And it's a calm kind of spaciousness that allows any tangles to untangle on their own without you having to do anything. It's just this place of resting. And we see that there are ways that we are on retreat and in life that can feed the calm or can lead to agitation. And it's One of them is this habit of the somewhere better to be or something better to do. Is it better that I go outside and walk? Or is it better that I sit longer? (laughs) No, we can get caught in would it be better to do this or do that. We get, um, and that kind of agitates the mind rather than just allowing it to unfold what should happen next. Or we start anticipating and moving into that, leaning into the next moment. What's next? What's next? And sometimes we just don't notice. It gets covered over by striving. And I was mentioning this when I was talking about, I think, the jhana factor of sukha. That sometimes we don't notice it. It can be, with tranquility particularly, a feeling of nothing's happening. It's boring. But just let it allow it to be and see what's here. Can I be okay with nothing happening? Maybe it could be a relief that nothing's happening. So it's this sense of neutral almost without the aversion, the sense of calm and ease. So we want to be present for our moments of calm and appreciate them. And I like quoting that cartoon from many years ago of this man who's sitting there and he's looking around and he's going, what was that? What was that? And underneath it says, Bob experiences a peaceful moment. (laughs) So we can just allow them and rest in them and let them grow, which feeds them. 
So the more familiar we get with calm, the easier it is to access it in our daily lives. And we can release into the support of it. Nature is very helpful that way. Sometimes looking at the sky and having a sense of having a mind like the sky. Or having a sense of the depth of a lake which is so still. There are many ways we can incline towards calm in our daily lives and how we can simplify our lives so it's more possible for that to arrive. So it's an invitation to relax into a wider spaciousness in the midst of busyness. Is that possible? To relax into the depth of inner calm, no matter what's happening around us. This deep inner stillness that we get more and more used to and is more and more accessible. So then calm becomes a conditioning factor for tranquility. I'm sorry. Tranquility becomes a conditioning factor for samadhi, an unmindful moment. And it was was, um, a breakthrough for me when I discovered in my practice that concentration came as a result of calming, not striving. I'd always been trying to get concentrated. And as soon as I stopped and relaxed, it came. And so many of you have pointed that out, that when you let go of trying to make it happen, the the samadhi naturally unfolded on its own. And so gradually, all of our experience is gathering together into this beautiful, collected, and unified place. And the mind is becoming more pliable and flexible the beautiful qualities that Sally was exploring and talking about. How the mind now is malleable and wieldy and we can direct it where we want to because it's become so still and so pure. It's like this inner beauty. And then our samadhi, our concentration, will hold the object and the mindfulness pays attention to it. And then the investigation begins to see the true nature of it. And so you can see how they all are coming together beautifully and building on each other. We start to see into the nature of the three characteristics of impermanence. And we begin to let go of our our fixed senses of identity. Concentration and investigation, when they come together begin to purify and loosen the hindrances that are obscuring. Because we see the hindrances and their causes more and more clearly. We see their causes and conditions. The more still the mind is. When we combine it with mindfulness, then there's a transformation and a purification that happens. And we're able to shift the habit patterns. When we're concentrated, when we have samadhi, they're less sticky. And we can fine-tune our practice more and more. There's a a beautiful um, um, story in the suttas of uh, when Sariputra is asked about the seven factors of enlightenment. 
he's, he's been coming and practicing and people have noticed how clear he is. And he's talking about how he practices. And he says, whichever of the seven factors of awakening I want to dwell in in the morning, I dwell in that factor. Whichever I want to dwell in in the middle of the day, I dwell in that factor. Whichever I want to dwell in in the evening, I dwell in that one. If it occurs to me, let the enlightenment factor of mindfulness be there. It occurs to me it's measureless. It's fully perfected. He sees it in its full perfection. When it persists, I understand it persists. If it abates, I understand it has abated in me for this particular reason. And so on, and he does that for each of the factors of awakening. I know it's there, I know it's measureless and perfected, and I know when it abates, and I know why it abates, what happened. And he says it's just like there were a king or a royal minister who had a wardrobe full of differently colored clothes. Whatever suit you might want to wear in the morning, you wore in the morning. Whatever clothes you wanted to wear in the middle of the day and in the end of the day and the evening and so forth. And so just in that same way, whichever of the factors of awakening I want to dwell in, that one can I dwell in. And I can incline my mind towards it. And know how to balance them and what to do when they abate. And so, um, it's, it's inspiring to think of that. And it's been wonderful for me to discover just a very small scale of that. When I'm, my practice and um, samadhi are there, just that it's possible to incline the mind towards a factor of awakening and have it arise. And to know when it's absent and know how to bring it into, into being. It may not last for very long, but I see that it's actually possible and that it's possible for each of us as we build gradually our practice and incline our minds in that way. We can fine-tune our practice more and more. So as all the qualities develop and come together more and more, as the samadhi, the concentration, collects them and balances them, they become more and more balanced. And now we're at this state of equipoise or equanimity, where the factors are balanced and the mind feels calm and still and nothing can disturb the evenness of mind. We're not moving towards or away. We're neither caught in accepting nor caught in rejecting. We're free from preference. We're able to just relax with things as they are. So there's this profound letting be. We're fully engaged and aware. We're able to include all of what arises. But there's this knowing but not being caught. A knowing and a letting go. A knowing and a letting go over and over. So smooth, steady, unwavering, and the deeper our practice gets, the more refined the equanimity gets. And as it begins to grow, 
we can see more and more subtle ways to adjust our practice. So each of the factors of in, in turn grows. And they, there's more mindfulness, and as there's more mindfulness, each of the other one grows, and then there's more equanimity. And so the whole thing is this beautiful <laughs> refining and deepening. They're all strengthening each other. And in our practice, we may have brief moments of equanimity. And they come and go quite quickly. And so it requires a lot of patience. We have a moment of balance, gone again. But we're gradually strengthening it as we practice. The more we're able to connect with it, and the longer that happens, the more that possibility exists. And eventually it becomes strong enough to really be a full factor of awakening to take us to liberation. And we keep inclining our mind to balance. And we keep noticing. And you can notice this right now. Is equanimity present or is it absent? Without judging. We learn so much about balance by paying attention to how we're not balanced. So we begin to have equanimity about having no equanimity. And that sounds silly, but that's really what it is. This is a moment of losing it. Losing it is like this. Can it be okay to be losing it? Disappointment is like this. Frustration is like this. We gradually build more and more capacity to be with things as they are and not need them to be different. Equanimity doesn't mean some perfect, beautiful state. It more is a growing capacity to be with things as they are. In our practice, when we as we bring it into our daily life practice and our meditation practice, mindfulness and equanimity, Bikunalio describes them as type two bookends. They completely support our practice. We need both the continual mindfulness and the balance of equanimity together. And it's as though by paying attention to each of them, the possibility of the awakening factors being in the books in between is right there. We have that support. It encourages them to grow and flower, the little seeds of awakening factors that we all have. On several occasions, the um, Buddha was asked, how do the seven factors of awakening lead to freedom, to liberation? How can we cultivate, how when cultivate and develop, how does it happen? And he always replied, when seclusion, dispassion, and cessation lead to letting go. And you'll notice that those are the same four qualities that Temple spoke about in the fourth tetrad of mindfulness of breathing seclusion. Actually, in, the, in mindfulness of breathing, it's impermanence, dispassion, cessation, and letting go. These four things. And it's really a progression of more and more refined letting go. So when the mind 
and hard to have the factors of awakening present, they're secluded from the hindrances. That's the seclusion. Or, in our insight practice, we're seeing more and more clearly into impermanence. And because the mind is either secluded by the hindrances, or we're, we're more familiar and comfortable with the fact that things are changing, because of that, there's less passion for things. We're less enchanted by everything. We, we get it that things are going to go. So we're more able to allow these things, there's a fading away of the craving for things, that's the dispassion, a fading away or a thinning out of the habit patterns of craving. Gradually that starts to happen. And because of that, we don't maybe hold on so tightly and we allow things to cease and there's a cessation of suffering. We might have just a moment that suffering ceases, but there it is, we've had a moment. And the more moments we have, the more we're able to keep letting go. So there's this, and this, that little um, cycle supports the development of the factors of awakening as we progressively let go in the same way that it supports the deepening of our concentration. So it, it's this beautiful process of seeing the, be getting disenchanted, allowing things to fade away, and then this moment of cessation. But even if we see, we have a, a wise moment or an insight um, into a habit pattern, we really get, we have this experience of, oh, I don't really need approval after all. I'm, this, just, this being is fine just as it is. We have that insight. I don't need approval. And we leave the retreat, I'm great, I don't need approval. This habit pattern has faded. And two days later, someone does something, and all of a sudden, I need to be seen, I want approval. And it's, it's, it's not a surprise, as you know, it's that the habit patterns are gradually fading, gradually thinning out. It's a, it's a, um, a progression of these habits fading and thinning slowly. And it takes time. Some of them, as Temple was saying, are long-term projects. The analogy I like is of um, water, sand, stone, where some of the habit patterns are like water. We just need to see something once or twice, and then, then we don't need to do that anymore. Some of them sand, it's like a drawing in sand, it takes a little more. Some of them are etched in stone, and it feels like a lot of work, and they gradually begin to change. And some of them are like the Grand Canyon. <laughs> not, maybe not in this lifetime. Um, and so then it's allowing and having compassion for that. This is how it is. We can have equanimity for those places. So this gradual process of letting go and we can watch for becoming and be letting go of this becoming. Becoming the one who has let go. <laughs> becoming the meditator who has had the insights, the meditator who understands. We're gradually letting go of those places too. 
So as we gradually relinquish more and more, we build more trust in that capacity and the fear of letting go lessens. And it can gradually, we can begin to let go of even the experiencer and the experience itself. The stability and the calm that concentration builds and that equanimity provides gives us the capacity and helps protect the mind so that we can explore deeper and deeper levels of impermanence and and anatta. We can, we can begin, because it's frightening to let go. As we see more deeply into, into impermanence, it's frightening. It's unsettling. But the equanimity provides us that sense of balance and stability so we can see more and more and begin to allow more and more. There's no point holding on. Everything is changing so fast. We're able to let go into the flow. And there's this willingness to let go. (coughs) On I think that same retreat where I was exploring this letting go, I was able to see that it was actually releasing on its own. The letting go wasn't a doing. There was just this sense of more and more releasing. Everything is coming and going anyway. There isn't anything to do. It's more actually to not do. It's an undoing and a releasing. So I saw that there were layers and layers of learning, patterns of getting it right, patterns of getting it wrong, patterns of self-doubt, all arising and passing, all arising and passing, and no one that this was all happening to. And that was such a relief and such a sense of ease and quiet and stillness. Until that state passed and the next thing arose, and then compassion for that. So the magic of the path is that these states do arise as we practice. They're available for all of us. We need to provide the conditions which we have been doing, connecting, sustaining our mindfulness practice, our shamatha practice, frequently giving careful, kind attention, and then inclining our mind intentionally inclining towards these beautiful qualities and turning away from the difficult mind states and having a sincere, open motivation that we want this for our own well-being and the well-being of all. And having patience for however long it takes for these qualities to ripen. Because as we gradually bring them more and more into our practice, there's a happiness, an ease, a contentment that comes with them. And we each have insights that bring more harmony into our lives. And there's a more and more unshakable balance that happens. And we start to see that it is possible to abide without clinging to anything in the world. So I'd like to end with this from the Dhammapada. Few cross over the river. 
Most are stranded on this side. On the river bank they run up and down. But the wise person following the way crosses over beyond the reach of death, free from desire, free from possessions, free from attachment, following the seven lights of awakening and rejoicing greatly in one's freedom. In this world, the wise person becomes themselves a light, pure, shining, free. So may the seven treasures of the Tathagata manifest in your practice and bring joy, ease, happiness and balance into your lives. Thank you for your attention, and we'll come back um, for our, our chanting later. And a sit. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.